0: This is CSAP Science and Policy Podcast, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. This week, we're proud to present the 12th episode in our series on science, policy and pandemics. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. In this episode, our host Dr. Rob Doubleday is joined by Professor James Wood and Professor Julia Gog.
1: Welcome, and it's really nice to welcome back Julia Gog and James Wood. You both very kindly started this CSAP series of podcasts back in the end of March, which probably seems like a very long time ago to many of us. And, and so it's, it's lovely to welcome you back, and it's an opportunity to catch up with you and catch up with you know how we understand the COVID pandemic and start to look ahead to what it's going to mean to live with this disease for the coming months and years. Julia Gog, Professor of Mathematical Biology from the University of Cambridge and participant in the SAGE process advising government, and James Wood, uh, Professor researching dynamics of infectious diseases, particularly zoonoses and head of the Vet School at the University of Cambridge. You're very welcome. Julia, if I could start by asking you, what is our current understanding of COVID-19 and the dynamics of the disease in the, in the UK in particular? What do we now know that we perhaps didn't know 12 weeks ago?
2: Oh, my gosh. So 12 weeks has been um, a long, long time in the world of COVID. And the research has shifted rather more than it should have in 12 weeks, of course. So there's perhaps years more of knowledge. But first, thinking about where we are, I mean, I was going to say COVID has turned over, but at least the first wave has turned over in the UK. Cases have been declining for weeks now and where we are in sort of early mid-June, Cases are down everywhere and there's just the question, are they going to stay down? Is there any signs of things turning around? But things are under control, which also means we know in the UK, albeit at great cost, but we know how to turn this thing over. And that's a very different world uh, from three months ago.
1: When we spoke then, there was a lot of conversation. You and James were both talking about the need for better data, more data to understand you know the disease, and and you particularly talked about the importance of understanding what proportion of people have been infected. Do we know more about that, and particularly, you know, then how that varies among the population? So, young people, diff- different parts of the population.
2: Yeah. So um, some information on that is out and is public now i think we were talking three months ago about the possibility of serological testing and i think everyone who listens to any news knows that serological testing or antibody testing has been happening and uh, marvelously they don't need to explain every time in the news either the difference between virus testing and antibody testing whether you've got it or whether you've had it and um, that's been done and some of the results are public and there's more and more being done it looks like a fairly low proportion of the population in the uk are seropositive i.e their blood shows that they've got antibodies to COVID-19. It's of the ballpark of 10% uh, across the country. Um, there are some differences in age, but you need to look at the details of, of different studies to see that. But they're not so dramatic as the differences between different regions in the UK. Um, you could have guessed this one in advance, but London was further ahead going into lockdown, right? Things had taken off there a little earlier. There were, a week or two ahead. So, unsurprisingly, the early studies have shown that seropositivity is a little higher in London. But, you know, depending on which study you're looking at, you're looking at 17%, 20%. We're not looking at the 50, 60, 70%. Which would mean that there's sufficient immunity just to I- ignore COVID 19. It's a significant proportion of the population, 10% or 20%, but it's not enough to fundamentally change things. But it does all help. I mean, it's basically going to take that proportion off R naught or R. In any future situation. And actually, the modelling on this has been quite interesting. There's been a lot of rediscovery of old results, because you can poke around the literature and find this done in the 80s, 70s, in fact, one paper from the 50s. This thing called herd immunity is complicated. It's not simply you have to achieve this proportion of the population and you're immune. Uh, It's really, actually, it's better news in many ways for COVID-19. The people who are most central and mix the most are going to get infected first. But it's also those people, if they're immune, it's the most protective so the community. This idea of herd immunity, which is almost a rude word at the moment, but some population level immunity that will help dampen down COVID-19 is achieved at a lower level than you might imagine. Mixed news on, on how many of us are immune.
1: Do we have a better sense of what kind of immunity people can develop through having had the disease?
3: I think that's a really difficult question. And it's very, it's a very difficult question to answer unequivocally for everyone. I think that it would be reasonable to assume that the vast majority of people um, would be much less likely to catch the infection if they previously had it. Um, But actually, you've got to see the impact of re-exposures in order to know that for sure. And it's, um, frankly, in every country, it's a little bit too early for that. But I, I, I mean, my view is that, it, is that whilst thinking about immunity passports might be a step too far um, at the moment, um, and there are a lot of inequalities that can follow on from that. Um, actually, it's a reasonable assumption to think that most people who have had the infection who have developed antibodies are unlikely to... Have, have significant problems from, from catching it again. It's not to say they don't have long-term sequelae to, to the infection. But I, I think one of the things that's really important about the numbers that Julia's just very clearly described is that it's not been herd immunity that stopped the epidemic on its own. But, so what that means is that our, our physical distancing um, measures, our lockdown, has been pretty effective. And I, and I think that's that's really important news um, that, that was something that we didn't really know for sure when, when we had this conversation um, 12 weeks ago. Julie, when you spoke 12 weeks ago, you talked about various scenarios that were plausible in terms
1: of this disease. You know, it, it, it could effectively be eradicated or it could become a seasonal occurrence or it could be something that would return more sporadically. And, and obviously, each one of those has huge implications for public policy and how we, you know, choices that governments make now. Do we know more about what to expect over the longer run?
2: I think all those possibilities are still on the cards, except I think most of us believe that eradication would be extremely hard with the tools that we've got at the moment. Um, That could change um, if you've got pharmaceutical interventions that could shorten infection Uh, or to be fast to be used, that could change. If you've got a vaccine of any level of efficacy, that could change and if contact tracing, track and trace, if we could develop that to be beyond what any country has got, we could talk about eradication. But at the moment it feels like that's a long way off and not within the power of the tools that we've got. And you also can't talk about it for any one country alone, right? You've got to talk about global eradication and that's just unimaginable at the moment. Will it become a seasonal nasty? Well, we just don't know that yet, right? A lot of us are worried that it could be a harder thing to control in the wind winter for biological factors which i hope james will be able to explain better than me it it could if it kicks off in the winter it may be harder to keep under control without doing as bigger or nearly as big a lockdown as we've done before uh, and that's going to get harder and harder uh, and costly in every possible human sense to do so that's going to be the next very tough time i think
3: there are two things that happen in the winter one is our behavior changes um, and how we mingle indoors with each other uh, rather than spending more time out outdoors. And I think that also there are things that go on that might mean that the virus might live longer when it's outside of a body in the winter. I mean, heat and dry, the sun and um, dryness are very bad news for viruses. And we do see uh, many respiratory diseases that, that, that vary Seasonally, but they're somewhat different. I mean, before vaccination, I mean, julia will know more about of this than, than me. Uh, measles used to massively resurge at the opening of schools in September, um, and that was driven by mixing between kids, and it's kind of appeared to be an autumn disease. Whereas influenza has always had a, much more of a peak around Christmas time, and so uh, around Christmas time, there obviously is mixing between families, but you wouldn't necessarily predict it from school related mixing, and it's it's. Not entirely clear to me um, for, um, for, for this uh, coronavirus, w- whether we're going to see something that's driven entirely by what happens, you know, a step change in relation to, to school kids, perhaps school children are going to be less important, certainly for the next year or so. Well, we're, we're all at a relatively low level of immunity, all age groups are at a low level of immunity. Um, Or whether we expect something more like influenza, where we get a a, a massive peak around Christmas time, um, which might be related to weather factors or the fact that that things are getting much, much colder. And therefore, we all tend to huddle inside and... that there may be a greater level of mixing. But I, I don't think that we understand what really drives the influenza peak in Christmas time in the way that we do understand what drove the the measles peak in, in September. And that's why I think it's very difficult, as Julia says, to predict what might happen as lockdown starts to to relax more. And that, that will, I think, be more apparent at the end of the summer when we've got to start seriously thinking about um, education starting again. I think um, m- most... Schools have really given up trying to do a lot of face-to-face teaching before the end of term now. When universities and schools go back, that could have important impact on, on epidemic takeoff. I don't think any of us really know, but but Julia might have much more insight into it from the the modelling work that she's seen and been involved in.
2: On the the school side, I think this is the one thing. If I could go back in a time machine 12 weeks and shout at myself about something, it would be about children. Most of us working on this have come from flu modelling or pandemic flu modelling. And the 2009 flu pandemic was largely about children. It was very much driven by children. And I think that's created a bias in the thinking of all the flu modelers. It's, it's, not, you know, it's a bias that we can remove in the model once we think about it. COVID-19 doesn't seem to be about the children in terms of either the transmission or in terms of the risk. It's really quite different. I mean, with 2009, part of the story was there was immunity in adults, right? So the kids were disproportionately more important. But it's If anything, it's slightly the other way around with COVID-19. Susceptibility to infection in children. There's growing evidence that given an exposure, a child is less likely to be infected than an adult. And, you know, even better for for younger children, it's less so. Uh, There is limited evidence, but there's more papers out this week even, um, that children may be less infectious if they're infected. And there is massive evidence that children are less likely to have severe disease if they are infected. If you put all that together and think, then what's the roles of schools, which is a big one we've been focusing on, it's maybe not what we would have intuited thinking about flu beforehand. So I don't think this is going to be so much like measles. The school year goes back and everything kicks off. I don't think schools are going to be as important at the population level of driving disease. There is the behavioural change as we go indoors, there is the biological changes, but I think there's going to be a third one involved for COVID-19, which is hospitals. One of the things we've seen in the UK is that we've had a very large number of infections in the hospital uh, setting, nosocomial transmission, and in the care home system in the UK. There has to be a lot of work to look at this afterwards, and intuitively it's the reason why things have come down so slowly in the UK. Even though transmission in the community was brought right down by lockdown, there was still so much transmission happening. There were a large number of cases and there was large numbers of deaths, especially in care homes. Brings my fear to what happens in the winter. Again, you've got higher bed occupancy in the winter due to everything else that's happening, non-COVID in terms of health, infectious disease, etc. So what happens if we've got COVID rumbling? Um, plus massive occupancy in hospitals again with other things, so I think that might be a third factor we 're going to have to think about in this case and that's that 's different to flu and that 's different to measles
3: i think that's a really i mean bringing in the the the, the kind of parallel epidemics in hospitals and care homes is so important and something that we're, i don 't think that, that we as a society let alone as a, a modeling community are Used to having to think about, you know, we're used to having diseases that old people generally have got much more immunity. I mean, I know that p- people will die from flu, but that's relating to to the fact that their immunity probably starts to be less effective in in the very old, um, and they're more more likely to suffer severe consequences when they get infected. But this is totally different, and this is this this is ex- I mean, exactly as Julie describes so, something that is quite different about the pattern of this epidemic compared or pandemic compared to normal diseases that we're used to dealing with. James can
1: you offer any thoughts uh, as we go forward in terms of uh, you know now we're apparently past the first you know peak and things are you know transmission rates are gradually coming down and and the imperatives you know in in terms of other things we worry about and care about will be to ease restrictions what kinds of measures sh- should policymakers be considering? I mean, how, how long should they be planning for? How should they be thinking about social distancing? And of course, that's that's critical when it comes to with education, the economy, transport, hospital, and social care, and other contexts.
3: So, so I mean, I think that we have to to think um, if if not forever, then very much in the medium term. I, I'm not a an optimist. About the speed of availability of vaccination that will protect everyone. I have Real concerns about our ability to do that. James, could you just put some
1: numbers on that? How, how long should we be planning for without a vaccine? Is it? Um, no, yeah. I
3: think we need to. I think we need to plan to live without a vaccine, and then be be pleasantly surprised when we get one, so that we can life can be easier after we have. I think that's the scale of time. You know, whether it's one, two, three years, we've got to get on with life in that time. And I think there's not so much what measures we need to implement now, although there are very important things that, that we're not yet, haven't really got ramped up like the test and trace that Julia's been talking about. And I, she'll, I think what's really important to think about is what we can do now that, that lockdown has stopped and what we can do now is safe. And I think that thinking about more, doing more things outside, thinking about, I mean, everyone wants to go on holiday. Everyone's exhausted at the moment. And I think that thinking how we can go on holiday in a safe way actually is quite important. And, I, and speaking personally, I think that you know, going off in a in a, uh, camping situation or going to stay in an empty house somewhere is something that, that actually is not really re- that much riskier than just staying in your own house, providing you travel safely. And the, the travelling is a big issue because, you know, things, things that, that might need to change in the way that we, we operate in them relate to public transport. I mean, I'd be very concerned to hear about the number of, of earlier in the, the epidemic where it there's really peaky in London, the number of bus drivers that, that died of this disease, probably through some occupational exposure. So then that's evidence of the public transport is something that needs real attention. And I think that face covering, mask wearing is really important. And I think that we're going to have to accept that if we want to get on with living something closer to how we were before, that, that things that stop a proportion of respiratory infections are going to be important. And I think that although I, six months ago I hated the idea, now I'm thinking, well, let's do it and um, we can get on and live more and just accept that that's something that's a positive change in terms of protecting ourselves and protecting society. So it hasn't really answered your question directly, but I think that it's much more about thinking about how we how we can do things that are fun and nice, which which don't put other people at risk. And, and that's going to be much easier when we have far more widespread availability of testing and, and greater confidence and test and tracing so that if if we're able to play football with a bunch of other people or go bicycling with a bunch of you know four or five other people that down the road we can be sure that they're not we're not shedding virus on them and vice versa. James I think that that that's very very
1: helpful. I might add fun nice economically productive and taxable
3: might be additionally <laughs> helpful. Of, of course. No, of course it is. And that, but that relates to getting back to work and business as normal because actually doing fun and nice things actually in many cases is a significant contribution to, to the community, I mean, to, to society. And I mean, sport does bring in a lot of money into society. I think that, that mass gatherings such as getting 100,000 people into a single ground, are things that are going to be much harder to justify for a lot longer. Um, but, but, but I think that, that there are ways of, of benefiting economically from the example of sport. I mean, a lot of the, the revenue actually comes from television revenue and, and betting in the case of horse racing. So a lot of these things could be done on a, on a scale so that the, that the activity is allowed, but you've modified the, the, the risk of transmission that, that goes along with it. And, and those are the things I think we need to think about.
1: Julia, what do you think?
2: I think I'm, I'm one of life's optimists. I really am. But I am worried for the future here. I think, in some ways, we've been through the worst. It's very frightening, and we had no idea if it could be controlled by lockdown. Now, the, now at least, we know one way to control this thing, even if it's at immense cost. Um, so we have something. But I don't think this is going away. I think this is going to change um, life. In, in many ways, it's not going to be a series of lockdowns. I hope we can avoid that um, and maybe we'll have to learn to live with contact tracing and the costs that will put on us. If you get a message or a phone call saying, you've got to stay at home, <laughs> you've got to stay at home. And that's going to be just a thing that happens through 2020, 2021, and maybe beyond. We'll just learn to adapt around that. You know, one piece of thinking, you mentioned that we, we thought beforehand we couldn't do a massive lockdown in the UK. I think that's right. I, I don't think we can imagine that. Yeah, we did it, right? So there's going to be other changes we will learn to live with and we will learn to cope with and to accept and hopefully avoid the worst effects of lockdown. But life is going to be different. I think there's going to be one of these, again, if you had a time machine, you would go forward 10 years and um, there'd be people saying, yeah, you, you couldn't have imagined this in 2020, could you? But there will be ways.
1: I mean, I'm wondering where you think we might be able to act smarter as it were you know uh, is there evidence that super spreading events are particularly important and therefore if we you know focus our interventions in particular ways we can do things smarter what's our current understanding of, of more targeted focused ways of controlling infection?
2: Yeah, exactly the right question. So rather than it just being a general level of infection in the population, there could be um, places where things are kicking off and you have some interventions uh, in local geographic areas. I think probably even more than that would be about uh, contexts. So is it about um, maybe people working in Cambridge University or is it about this particular part of the community? Is it this hospital? And we'll be much sharper at spotting that and... um, putting appropriate infection control for that setting uh, in place faster
1: that that sounds like you know another instance where it's going to depend on the testing and tracing infrastructure in order to be able to to make that kind of fine tune adjustment
2: to some extent but some of this is is just good public health right if you you know something's kicking off in the university you don't need everyone tested you can see it happening and say okay we need to switch to all supervisions are via Zoom for the next two weeks until we know things are safer things like that which we would have found utterly unimaginable and would have seemed something that would be incredibly hard to do and incredibly disruptive. But you know what? It's not going to be as painful to do in the future now we know how to do this and now we know how to switch into this and switch out of this again. But other things like that, just knowing where, okay, you can just remove these set of meetings in person or these interactions with person in person for a time until you know that that setting is safe again.
1: That comes to sort of questions of politics and public administration doesn't it? Because you know who is going to take those decisions and and you know how are they going to be enforced? So, for example, there's a lot of discussion about local lockdowns, but big
3: questions about you know whether that's actually politically plausible. That, but uh, so, but, but the French did it. You know, the, the French have perhaps moved through that phase, but that certainly the way they released lockdown was very much on a um, region by region basis and, and smaller than county level. Um, and counties are quite big in relation to this sort of this sort of scale. I think that we need to um, look look at all of these things.
2: You know, it'd be tricky getting public adherence to this thing had we not seen what Covid can be like and how disruptive it can be to us. I think, yes, exactly, these things have got to be options. These got to be things we've got to think about and communicated clearly why we're doing it and, and getting good adherence. I,
3: I think what's really interesting, um, Rob, you're talking about um, imposition um, in your question. I think what's really interesting is is to see what level of of, um, of buy-in people will have, and maybe actually people's behaviour will drive this. Um, it's not a lot of fun having lots of old people dying around you, which is what we're talking about Is kind of the worst consequences of this, and lots of other people getting really ill, some with really nasty long-term sequelae. And, and actually, it may well be that that's a year or so into this, that people are much more willing to implement local measures where they see the real risk is to the people that they know around them, rather than being something that's kind of notional across the whole country where you're not really it. So I, I mean, it, I think that our attitudes have changed massively in the last three or four months, and they may change a lot more still. One thing we've seen so far is a fairly sort of
1: strong backing for public action and, and government. The, you know, there's a question as to how how that will last, particularly as we see the kind of the unequal consequences of this virus and not only the unequal consequence in terms of who the virus is affecting and how badly it's affecting, but also who's bearing the cost from the kind of uh, restrictions that are in place and the hit to the economy that's happening and the loss of jobs that are coming. You know, I wonder, you're, you're both Looking at the disease and the dynamics of the disease, but but what's your thought in terms of you know let's take um, the the disproportionate impact on black and minority ethnic communities in this country? I mean, how how can we hope to bring people together with these measures when it seems like the burden is so uh, unevenly borne?
3: That is a really um, important, I mean, I think it's one of the most important questions. We we, we talked at the beginning as a public health message, um, or it was talked about at the beginning as a public health message that that the virus won't discriminate. It's absolutely clear that the virus has uh, discriminated to a massive extent. Now, some of that discrimination relates to the fact that that people of different races are, are different genetically, and probably there is some, some under, underlying genetic predisposition to the worst effects with this particular virus. Um, but the, the other thing uh, element that, that this epidemic is very clearly demonstrated is, is the fact that our exposures and our risks and our ability to respond and avoid to risks are massively dictated by by the inequalities that exist in our society prior to the epidemic. And I think this is, this is an area where we have to ensure that those who are at greater risk of worst effect and are, are in many cases also least able to protect themselves, do receive a higher level of attention in terms of how, we, how we're implementing public he- health measures. Because I don't think we've been very successful about doing that so far.
2: Everything about this has just underscored inequalities in every possible way. Vulnerability to disease. Uh, we've seen it, there's a huge factor of age. Then there is a massive factor of race. race. And we don't understand it well yet. Uh, it's not that people aren't trying to understand it, but we just don't get it yet. Yeah. Uh, and these, this is one of the things that we might have a better handle on, both the mechanism and to be able to predict who's at risk in future. But it's not just the biology where the inequalities are. As, as James said, it's it's everything here. It's the cost of what happens when the economy goes wrong. Who's losing out because they can't work um, Because or because they have to work from home? How difficult is it, you know, if you're told to isolate and stay at home? Maybe that's one thing for me with a, a comfortable house to go and stay in. That's not true for everyone. And the majority of the work I've done for the last couple of months has been looking at um, children in the UK. And that's been an absolute eye-opener. That was not my expertise. Um, I still wouldn't say it's my expertise, but learning about just what a high proportion of really vulnerable children we have in the UK, where getting to school Getting that normality of being at school is so important because life at home is not okay. Um, I'm not sure a society should be like this so that school is so central to um, creating normal life and ensuring a hot meal. But it is like that, right? So when you have these lockdowns and you say stay at home, for some children, for no family is that easy, I'm sure, but um, for some children it's really devastating and some they'll cope with it because their parents can take time to do this and they can be looked after at home and this can be managed. Everything about this just underscores inequalities, and, and race is part of this in the UK as well. It, do you think that
1: the science and, and the work of universities really needs to kind of recognise those questions of, of inequalities and the differential ways that public health crises and public health interventions impact people? Do you think that's something that, that research has been blind to in the past, or is it just that, you know, the current events are are, are exposing these inequalities in, in
2: more stark ways. I think we need to have a conversation about that within University of Cambridge. One of the things I've learned about during this lockdown, talking to colleagues who are fellows in Queens and the Queens SCR, is that I should not have been surprised by this. In any kind of disaster, there's inequalities and it's earthquakes in particular, um, my colleagues are experts on. So we heard about, you know, the story that, you know, the poor die and the rich pay, which is grossly oversimplifying in many ways. But this, these stories that are repeated across all these different settings, what what we could have learned, what we should have learned it doesn't mean there's any easy answers in what you do going forward, because if you don't intervene enough, one group gets hurt. If you do intervene too much, almost, almost certainly the same group gets hurt in a different way. But I think we should certainly be having these conversations now across the university, across different disciplines. It's not just healthcare. If there's health disasters, if there's major crises, emergencies, catastrophes. The inequalities these cause. Um, and I think this this is something that, that is essentially a
3: multidisciplinary conversation. I mean, the political and social, economic sciences are absolutely central to this discussion and debate. And I, and we we've got to look at trying to get some good out of this pandemic, picking up on these lessons and trying to do something about it instead of just saying, "Well, that's very interesting. Um, what a shame," and then just carrying on. I think now is a time that we that actually we need to try and work out some solutions to this, as Julie's just been saying. And it's um, I, I'm I feel most uncomfortable with with um, what we're seeing um, resulting from this pandemic, and I think that many people around the country and around the world do. This is something where we need we I think we need to use the pandemic that pandemic as a sort of call to action in this respect um, as best we can. Well, I'm I'm sure we'll come back to both of you and and, and ask you you know how how
1: to how to do that. But I want to just. End by asking you, I mean, how you're both inf- people that understand infectious diseases, and you've been working on infectious diseases for, for most of your careers, and of course, now. We are living through a moment where it's affecting all of our lives, and you know the lucky ones of us are just having to cope with working from home. And of course, there are people whose lives, you know, are ended or upturned in in, in tragic ways by this disease. I mean, that must put huge pressure on you. The the demands placed on you, the kind of responsibility you may be feeling. I mean, how does it feel like? And and how, how do you feel your you and your colleagues are coping? And
3: I think that I, I mean, so a lot of my challenges have related to university. Um, uh, administration of trying to revise teaching exams um, for a practical course like veterinary science, which have been uh, pretty profound. But um, I think that the, there's a lot of pressure on our area of science to try and think about uh, interventions, measures so that will stop future pandemics like this happening again. And this is an area that I've been working in for 15 years or so. As you can see, unsuccessfully, <laughs> the, we have a far far better understanding of, of what underlies the emergence of these diseases. But we don't have any very easy answers. And I think one of the things that I'm very concerned about is making sure that the answers that we do come up with don't have all sorts of unintended consequences, again, in an unequal and inequitable manner on people who are least able to protect themselves from International interventions that say thou shalt not um, that thou shalt not eat any bush meat anymore. For example, when millions of people around the world depend on on bush meat on wild meat for their protein source and have done all of uh, and so we need to make sure that 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 our, our interventions are proportionate, successful, um, without massive consequences for people who who are not best placed to to deal with them. But I, th- I think that 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 there is a. Um, a big impact on this area of science and that so many people have been brought into it that um, and have been doing so much work that many people are, are simply exhausted and actually really tired people don't, won't do the best work um, and won't, won't necessarily be able to support things as the best they can. So I think we've got to look at, look at doing things that um, now we're through this really early uh, appalling stage of being more proportionate um, over, over how much work any particular group of individuals can do. Julia, how are you?
2: I don't know where to start on that one. Um, I'm absolutely wrecked, which um, <laughs> won't surprise you at all. You know, but it, this, is, this is what I work on. This is what my research area is. I think if you tackle anyone who works on infectious disease, we're in this partly because it's interesting, let's be honest, but we're in this mainly because um, we want to stop diseases, help control diseases. I need to do exactly what we're doing now. That's why we do this. And if that means we have to work our butts off for 2020 and beyond. We'll just get on and do it. It's just what we need to do right now. You know, James made a good point that perhaps um, us being absolutely zonked isn't the best strategy. Actually, I've had a huge team behind me supporting me and looking after me. My department's been fantastic, letting me go on leave uh, from early February to focus 100% on this onwards. Uh, my college has been there cheering me through and supporting me. I've got welfare support uh, through the college. I've got my family looking after me. I've got my friends looking after me. I'm very, very lucky that I've been able to throw everything into this and the people who appreciated I need to do this. Um, I've been watching my colleagues who i have been working with closely day to day for months, getting more and more wrecked. The field is changing. There's more and more people coming into it. And um, initially, perhaps that wasn't useful because we were just flat out and didn't have time to connect more people into it. But over the last um, few months, last week, certainly last few weeks, actually, we've got these reinforcements working quite well. We've got um, the research groups bolstered. Um, there's been some quite rapid responses and funding to uh, get things in place. And we are very much looking to how do we make it sustainable? How do we keep working on this in the future at the right pace? Part of that is, is just adjusting, get a sensible pace of doing things uh, going forward from here. Well, thank you both very
1: much for joining um, us for this discussion, I think it's been very clear that there is some good news in terms of the acute phase of this first wave of the ep- epidemic, but that that um, progress has been won at quite considerable cost to society and I think the most sobering thing that you've both emphasized is that we should be preparing to live with this disease for you know, the next few years. And we need to be smart about how we manage that so that, the, you know, so that it's sustainable in terms of our own well-being as individuals and as, as a society and as an economy. Um, and so I think that the kinds of insights that you've been sharing are clearly going to be critical to that. But then more, you know, as we think about understanding the disease and understanding the responses, the need to think of it in an interdisciplinary way, the need to think of the kinds of social dynamics <laughs> inequalities um, and, and, and what we can learn from this phase and, and take forward is going to be so, so important. So I'm just really grateful to you both uh, for, for joining me and I hope perhaps in 12 weeks' time we can get you back and we'll see, see what progress has been made and now. Thank you very much.
0: CSAP Science and Policy Podcast is a production of the Center for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. This episode of our series on science, policy, and pandemics has been produced in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. This episode was hosted by Dr. Rob Doubleday and produced by me, Kate McNeil. Our guests this week were Professor James Wood and Professor Julia Gog. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at C-Sci Paul or by visiting our website at www.csap.cam.ac.uk. If you have feedback about this episode, or questions you'd like us to address in a future week, please email inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.